Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrek. In the late 1960s, the University of New Mexico played a key role in bringing together creativity and technology in what was then the nascent field of computer art. Now a new book from Museum of New Mexico Press offers the first in-depth account of this early digital creativity, Sharing Code, Art One, Frederick Hammersley, and the Dawn of Computer Art. It was a unique period in the evolution of digital art, and as author Patrick Frank tells the story, New Mexico was the perfect place for the development of this new art form. Well, it had to happen there for a couple of reasons. First is because the advanced computer technology was there basically because of the Manhattan Project and all the research on the atomic bomb. And then secondly, the head of the art department at UNM in those days was Charles Maddox. And he was very keen on the idea of bringing art and technology together. So you have the best technology of the day, you have a person who's interested in getting it going, and then you have an electrical engineer named Richard Williams who wrote the program Art One. He had certain artistic proclivities himself, he knew Charles Maddox, and that it, 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 it kind of went from there. How did the pieces come together here in the 1960s around the Department of Art to give birth to this new kind of art form? Well, Charles Maddox came, Clinton Adams came. Clinton Adams was the head of the Tamarind Institute. These folks all came from California. Um, Maddox was was based in, in L.A. So was Frederick Hammersley, who was the main subject of the book. There was this influx of people from California And there was a desire to make the UNM art department into a national leader, which it really was there for a while in terms of bringing art and technology together. So there was an influx of people from out of the state and using the resources that were there, the high tech stuff, it resulted in this kind of movement, this flowering. So what was the role that Professor Charles Maddox played in this evolution? I wish I had known him. Everyone who I've ever talked to him about him said that he was always open to new ideas, willing to discuss just about anything with anybody. He was ready for whatever. And he he himself used a lot of analog technology in his work before he came to New Mexico. And that sort of analog science was of great interest to him. So, and he saw an opportunity being in Albuquerque where the high-tech stuff already existed he saw an opportunity to do something that could only be done there. So he was responsible for a lot of the artists coming in from California and for establishing this this art and technology influence at the faculty. How did he work in a cross-disciplinary fashion with the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering? That must have been unusual for the time. It was unusual. Uh, Richard Williams, the the programmer who wrote Art One, was on the electrical engineering faculty, and he himself got a PhD at UNM, and he also worked on things connected to the Manhattan Project. But he had artistic proclivities. He had a certain natural talent for drawing and painting, for example. He met Maddox through an intermediary that I've never quite found out how, and the idea grew up from there that Charles Maddox said, I want to get artists using the computer. Can you help me with that? And so Williams wrote this program, Art One, which would enable an artist who knew nothing about computers to create works on paper. Who else became part of the Art One community? 
there were several people. It started out among graduate students, one of whom was Richard Cook. Richard Cook was a graduate student of advanced age because he already worked on the Manhattan Project making ceramic parts for nuclear bomb detonators. Jim Hill, who later opened the first contemporary art gallery in Santa Fe, Hill's Gallery, and Frederick Hammersley, the fellow who came in. Who, Hammersley made more works with art one than anybody else. And then from there it went to Minnesota. Um, a woman came from Minnesota, from the art faculty of the University of Minnesota, drawn by Maddox and this whole nexus of art and technology. Uh, Katie Nash was her name. And she took the program there, and then it went from there to England because she knew people with the Computer Arts Society in London. It might have amounted to 15 or 20 people at, at its peak. Not all of the art survives, unfortunately, but it amounted to 15 or 20 people. It's so interesting this confluence of art and science was happening here at that time, at a time post-Sputnik when the country was sort of moving towards this very practical focus on science and math. Was this kind of a reaction to that? In some ways it was. I mean, at that time, a lot of talk was around the subject of the two cultures, that America was highly sophisticated technologically, and in the cultural realm, you have this avant-garde, like abstract art. And the two cultures have nothing in common. They don't talk to each other. They're just completely like foreigners. And how do they come together? We have a bifurcated culture, the two cultures, you know, this is a problem. So Richard Williams and Charles Maddox made an effort to bridge that simply so that to bring the artist and the technologist together so that the artist can use the products of technology and to create something that's creative that, that a technologist could relate to and that other people could relate to. So yeah, it was definitely in the air in those days, the whole two cultures and Maddox and, and Williams tried to bridge it. This program that Richard Williams wrote that allowed the artists to create works of art, even if they knew nothing about computers, it was also on this like one of these giant mainframe computers. So how did this actually work? Williams wrote the program in Fortran, and Fortran uses simple words to do things, to add it's mostly used for business and science and technical calculations. So he wrote the program so that the artist could specify, say, a line. And, and you specify a direction of the line, the length of the line, and what character to use to make the line. There were six or seven geometric shapes that the, that the artist could specify by size and location in the field, line, circle, ellipse, square, shaded area, this kind of thing, simple mathematical shapes that, that the artist can define. And then you write out the program pretty simply with a row of numbers, and then you hit print and then you see what you got. The computer had no monitor. There was no, you didn't know what you got until you hit print. And so using those simple commands, you can combine a line and a shape in a certain ways on, in certain locations and create compositions in the field that the, that the printer allowed. So did the artists actually learn Fortran? They learned a computer programming language? They didn't learn all of it. They only, they only needed to learn what, what would generate their art. You only had to learn uh, probably 10 or 12 commands. And Williams made, I'm old enough to remember, blue mimeographed things that had that funny smell to them. I remember those. Well, that's, that's <laughs> what he created. He created a mimeograph, uh, uh, an eight-page mimeograph that laid it out very simply. 
here's how you make a line and here's what it looks like when you do make it, you know? How much of the resulting artworks were the artist's vision and how much the interpretation by the computer from the program the artist wrote? Very little of it was due to the computer, actually, because you could specify minutely where you wanted that line to go, how long it would be, how thick it would be, and what character you would use to create it. So the printer was a line printer which printed numbers and symbols and letters. It it didn't draw lines. It only printed numbers and symbols and letters. So it was limited in that respect. And it was different from a lot of other computer art at that time because it came out of a line printer format. Um, So, yes, it did have some influence, but then the medium always influences what an artist does. So, yeah, it did, but not much. Give us a sense of the different kinds of artworks that were created using this. It's kind of interesting because you do see individual styles. Among the six or seven artists that I feature in the book, out of the dozens that use the program, I narrowed it down to six or seven, those artists all have a unique way of going about it. Richard Williams made several that include mathematical curves. I mean, he was a mathematician. He had very sophisticated knowledge of that. He was able to use curves. Frederick Hammersley rarely used curves, for example. Um, Katie Nash went for more painterly effects, so she tried to create shading and sort of like the look of spontaneity in her works. So there is a wide variety of expressions possible, definitely, and you can see individual styles among the artists who use the program. This had a huge impact in in a way on Frederick Hammersley. How did he use this technology and what kind of impact did it have on his evolution as an artist? He came to New Mexico in 1968, already an established artist with a wide recognition for doing abstract hard edge paintings. That's what he always was in his life, was an hard edge abstract painter. He came to New Mexico in 1968 and joined the faculty at a time when his painting was was in the doldrums. He was kind of in a slack period. He was out of ideas, he said. And so the computer came along and he ran with it. He wasn't doing any paintings at the time. And and something about the world of the program really stimulated his creativity to explore various ramifications and possibilities. So he made literally hundreds of works, sometimes with just subtle variations from one to another. And he explored very thoroughly what the computer program was capable of. And he did this for more than a year, probably a year and a half or so. And and then he sort of thought that he had done all he could with it. And then he went back to painting. And then interestingly, the paintings that he created showed the influence from the computer works that he had already done. So it did play a certain role in his evolution as an artist, definitely. How was Art One part of a larger movement in the 1960s to integrate art and technology? We now use the term shareware and open source software. That term was coined, oh boy, in the 1980s, in the the middle 1980s, open source. This was an example of open source software before the term was invented. The program existed as a stack of cards, you know, the famous IBM cards, and it could be easily circulated by handing somebody a stack of the cards. Williams liberally shared the program with anybody who wanted it, anybody who, he'd just give it to them. And and Katie Nash also did the same thing. When she took the program back to Minneapolis, to the University of Minnesota, 
she had electrical engineers there put, put a new spin on the program, give it new capabilities. And then when she took it to London, other creators, other electrical engineers, especially a fellow named Roger Saunders, wrote other aspects into the program to expand its capabilities. So the software evolved over time and it improved in, in a way that's very parallel to the way software develops today in an open source format. I'm trying to f- picture creating a work of art when you had to visualize it and make it happen using a series of punch cards. I just can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a type of indirect creation, you know, and it's similar to, say, Beethoven, who couldn't hear writing the score of a string quartet and not knowing what it's going to sound like until they play it, you know, Um it, it's 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 creativity at one remove. It's it's really similar to musical scoring in that regard because you don't know what it's going to look like or until it actually happens. It is that type of create. It's not spontaneous. Yeah, it's the opposite of that actually. That must have been really interesting for artists who sort of s- standing there waiting for the printout to see what comes out. <laughs> and if it's like that's not what I wanted at all, or wow, that's intriguing. I hadn't thought about that. Or you know, I interviewed four or five people who actually used the program. And they all said that, that there was always an element of surprise. And sometimes they would do something wrong. They'd put in an incorrect command and the whole thing would abort and it wouldn't print anything at all. Or you might get, you know, Jim Hill said to me, gee, is that what I did? I'm surprised to see that. (laughs) So, you know, there's a different kind of exploration going on because it's not an immediate creativity. You write about the cultural divide between humanists and technologists. How did Art One help bridge that? Art One helped bridge that by exposing artists to how the technological mind functions. Fortran is very basic. It's just like the computer is a complete bonehead. You have to tell it literally everything, specifying every tiny last detail, and you can't make any mistakes in those specifications. So it exposed artists to that way of thought, definitely. And some artists, especially who work in an indirect way of creation, a lot of sculptors tended to gravitate toward this because sculpture is a more indirect thing, mold making and that kind of thing. So it exposed artists to the way the technological mind works. And then technological people who used computers were always surprised by what came out of that because from the technological point of view, you're using the computer for something that it wasn't designed to do. It wasn't designed to make art. Nobody thought of that as a goal of a computer before. So it showed technologists other uses of their product. Wow, look at that. We can do this with that. And it also brought artists into the realm of technological thought, brought those two worlds closer together in those two ways. Um, how does that division still persists despite the advent of these innovations like Art One. I think the division still persists, but it's broken down. It's it's evolved. It's evolved somewhat. Back in the early days, they used to talk about the black box syndrome. When early computer users back in the 80s, when, when personal computers first began to enter people's homes, you had this thing and you didn't know what the heck it was. You had no idea how it functioned. And you did this stuff and it functioned. And that was called the black box effect. It was a black box you had, not like the car you could go out and work on. This was something you, you couldn't get into. So 
the black box effect is still definitely with us. It has changed, it's evolved somewhat because um, our technology is so much easier to use now. It's so, it's so much more user-friendly now that we're very at ease and used to it. I mean, I'm, I'm so used to this stuff. I don't write, I can't write a program. I never learned how to do that. But I, I'm very used to man, you know, using images and pictures and text and blocks of text and editing and formatting stuff. So our, our attitude toward technology is still that we have the black box, but it's a friendlier black box now. And, and Art One represented a very incipient beginning stage of that evolution. I was going to ask you, how did Art One pioneer like different innovations in art and technology? Did it pioneer those? Well, it did, actually. Um, the first exhibition of computer art on planet Earth happened in 1965. There were two of them, one in Europe and one in New York City. They used plotters, a, a computer that holds a pen and draws a line with a pen. And so computer art was very much in its infancy when Art One came along. It was still absolutely cutting edge. I mean, only a tiny sliver of people even knew about it or cared about it. And so this was the leading edge of artistic innovation from a technological standpoint. What was unique about Art One was that it used a line printer which converted letters and symbols into artworks. That was a unique thing. Very few, you know, there may be one or two other experimental programs that used a line printer, but none of them, they didn't have the, the purchase, the, the influence that Art One had. The Art One community basically ended in the early 1970s. Why? Um, technology ran faster than the program could to pick it up. Specifically, when, when monitors came into use, we had a thing called the frame buffer, which was perfected, I think, in 1976. And that allowed you to see what you were doing and then make an adjustment on the screen before you actually printed it. And that was a major factor in, in the obsolescence of Art One. And the other was that printers became, um, I should say plotters became much more common. Plotters became easier to control and a plotter has more freedom to draw lines than a line printer does. So the use of plotters was always happening and it, and it overtook the use of line printers. And then with the invention of the frame buffer and the, and, the, and the arrival of monitors, that kind of spelled the death knell. Rather than rewrite Art One, it became easier just to write a whole new program. I think you mentioned also they actually had to change the kind of paper they used. Yes, they did. <laughs> On the mainframe computer, the giant mainframe. And that, yes. that simple thing also had an yeah. impact. There, there was a struggle at UNM about do we use the lined paper or do we use the blank paper? And it always had those tractor holes at the edge to pull it through the machine. But at first they were using lined paper and then they went to, then they went to what Richard Williams called braille paper so that you could have a nice thick, none of it's museum quality, by the way, it's, it's none of it's archival. <laughs> and so there was a struggle. And then uh, one factor at, at UNM was that the, that the computer center stopped buying the expensive blank paper. That was a sad thing that happened in 1971, which was a, which almost spelled the end of Art One at UNM when they stopped buying the the appropriate type of paper. Was there any kind of pushback on that? I, you know, 
I, there yeah, were other there people. You, I mean, I, I understand there are other uses of the computer, but yeah, the computer um, did did all the taxes and did the payroll of UNM, for example, and and all the scientific departments used it too for it for their scientific calculations, which was ninety nine percent of the use of that computer. So was there, was there a pushback? Yes, there was, but you know, technology was moving so fast that the the pro computer that was that they were using the IBM 360 had itself begun to obsolesce in the early 70s so you know time marches on and that's what took it away basically at the end uh, what was the critical reception for some of the art created with us mostly it was exhibited a lot fred hammersley printed out numerous copies of his work and you could do that you could print out you know 20 30 100 of your artwork and, and it, it circulated pretty widely among university art galleries and nonprofit spaces. And generally, the response was curiosity. There was a review in, in, the, in, the, in the Albuquerque newspaper in 1969 that says that, wow, now there's a new use for our tax forms. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. So it was mostly taken as curiosity, and, and they had no hopes of selling any of it. I mean... Hammersley put a price of 50 bucks on his things once, you know, but it didn't sell. Despite that, did it, did it have a lasting impact? I think it, see, the idea, the idea behind Art One that you should create a program so that artists who know nothing can use the technology, that idea continues to this day. Other technologists, some of whom knew about Art One, created with, with later computers and more sophisticated equipment, other programs that got artists into the computer room to start making works themselves using the programming languages. And that continues to this day. Absolutely. You do write in your book, even though many artists use lots of technology, they function more like sophisticated consumers of software rather than empowered explorers. Why? Yeah, that's because computers are so sophisticated now that you really, to get under the hood, Boy, unless you have an electrical engineering background or a computer science background, it's too much for most artists to get involved with. I know a couple who do that, but it's just the hurdles are just too great. That would be like a painter wanting to go mine the pigment, to go to the pigment source and sort of grind the pigments and things. That, that would be so unusual for an artist to attempt. But I sense in your writing that that you feel like something is lost because of that. I think something is lost. Yeah, something is lost. Um, you lose control over the over the a stage of the process. Yes, you do. Um, Hammersley noticed that too. He said, this isn't the same as drawing a line. I lose a certain amount of control over this because I didn't physically draw the line myself. Um, so something is lost. But on the other hand, it's a different kind of creativity. And creativity finds its way into all kinds of stuff. And I'm and I, for one, I'm just thrilled that it found its way into this. Oh, boy, let me tell you, because it's fascinating. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, end with. Why? Uh, what do you hope to do with this history? What What changes do you would you like to see? Why, I mean, why did you basically? Why did you want to write those? I care about art and technology because technology governs a large part of our existence. Oh, boy, does it ever! Especially nowadays, now that. Everything we do online is collected and sold by who knows what company to whom. Technology is, is a controlling influence on our culture. 
And so it's very important to have artists in that field messing around. It's very important to have artists in there testing the limits, pushing back the boundaries, seeing what else is possible. And I wanted to bring those, following in the spirit of Art One, I wanted to bring those two together so that to bring the insights of art into something that controls our culture to an alarming degree. Do you have hope that that's happening or will happen more? It's a long struggle. And uh, the next book that I'm working on now, I, I'm, that takes up a very early phase of computer art. Now I'm, I'm on a, working on a project about the 1980s, artists who use computers in the 80s. There's a big split in the art world between tech artists and artists. And I'm hoping to overcome that. I'm, I'm working to break down that barrier because tech art is not some strange thing. It's art. That's interesting. So there remains that sort of split, huh? Absolutely. Unfortunately, it does. It, and most museums, you know, they don't think of it as art. They think of it as it's like folk art or like Asian art. Or it's not art. It's, it's tech art. And that's unfortunate because it's all creativity and it's all welcome. In my view. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that split up on, with folk art in particular was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's all art. Mm-hmm. Well, Patrick, is there anything else you wanted to add I didn't touch on? Or? I certainly enjoyed my time in Albuquerque, I have to say. I spent several weeks there. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was very fun. It was cool. Had a nice time. Sure. Nice town. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. This is really interesting. It's a pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity. That was Patrick Frank, art historian and author of Sharing Code, Art One, Frederick Hammersley, and the Dawn of Computer Art. You can find this and all our episodes of University Showcase at KUNM.org. That's also where you can donate on this last day of our fall fundraiser. Please take a moment to support this important resource in our community. Go to KUNM.org and click Donate. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase.